1: Hi everyone. It's Stuff, BuildUp's executive portfolio liaison. This week on the nonprofit BuildUp is part 2 of a two-part panel discussion originally recorded at the Peak 2022 conference. Moderated by BuildUp CEO A Nicole Campbell and in conversation with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's deputy director Melanie Brown, Just Leadership USA's president and CEO Deanna Hoskins, and Harold Advisor's principal Alicia Taylor. This presentation was originally recorded in March 2022. You can jump back to part one of the conversation to learn more about managing risk for equitable grant making. But with that, let's dive into the second part of Nick, Melanie, Deanna, and Alicia's discussion, where they dive into the practice of progressive grant making, the inequities that traditional grant making has on marginalized communities funders aim to serve, and how to align grant making with an organization's appetite for risk. You won't want to miss it.
2: I really like that framing, Melanie. And, you know, we've talked about funders, the role that they can play, and how we can hold funders accountable to make sure that we are in this equitable grant-making space. And I want to make sure that we focus on grantee practices as we think about grant-making as a whole. What do grantees need to wrestle with when it comes to risk? And what does reframing of risk look like for grantee organizations? Deanna, I would love to get your thoughts on on those questions.
3: One, I think grantee organizations have to take a look internally. I actually look at internal processes to ensure that safety nets are in place. That, and I guess this is my people say my PTSD are coming from government. Because I just believe you have to be good stewards of the money entrusted in you. So what are the processes and procedures you have in place? One, to fiscally be held accountable. But two, that you're not even wearing your staff out, that this is going to be an opportunity to build your staff and build the capacity of the organization that even when this funding goes, that's going to be sustainable, right? So one of the things that I do within an organization that I had to do to minimize risk was I couldn't be the only decision maker. In the organization, I realize structures or titles are there because we're in a capitalist world and they need to know somebody's running the ship. But in decision-making on funding opportunities, we collectively do it as a team. And sometimes I get outvoted because my team is actually delivering it. They're actually doing the work. And I have to be mindful of the harm I'm causing them by chasing funding, right? But I also think we have to be honest with ourselves. Am I, one, operationally prepared to go after $5 million? Two, do I have the capacity to deliver on what I'm saying I'm going to deliver on in this proposal? And then three, what is my potential sustainability plan if I get this and I expand my organization, I do these things? What are my potential sustainability plans? To keep it on that, I keep my staff on that I'm able to have a team. I'm not just chasing funding and hiring people, firing people. But then, two, what does that sustainability look like, right? And I, and for me, again, you can tell I'm a storyteller. I'll share that for me, focusing being bold. We we have this this culture in our organization that we're going to boldly call out what it is. So while we address criminal justice issue. We're boldly calling out the racial disparities and inequalities in the various systems that filter into criminal justice. Because if I stay talking about criminal justice as the only problem, criminal justice ain't gonna be sexy in seven years with funders, right? Funders are gonna go somewhere else. But the one thing, no matter if it's education, reproductive rights, criminal justice, mental health, substance abuse, is always a racial disparity to it. And if you follow it through, the end results of those failed systems, that systemic poverty and all those things always fall into the criminal justice system, right? So in order not to bury ourselves and be limited to funding and then everybody's going after the same money, we're trying to change a system that has created racial disparities in economics, reproductive rights, education, mental health, access to all these things. So as an organization, I had to strategically look how do I sustain this organization while still meeting our overall mission of disrupting, disrupting the oppressive and marginalizing policies that are actually having the impact on the communities we're trying to empower? So then it was a strategic, it was like turning a ship in the middle of the ocean without anyone on board feeling the turn, without anyone on board feeling the turn. And then you're here, you have this strategic plan, and just so happened, What was happening in the world at the time, unfortunately, aligned with what you were saying. So when everyone was saying, we don't know what you're talking about, why you're doing that, George Floyd happened, Breonna Taylor happened, right? COVID happened. And now everyone's like, oh my God, we get it. No, we've been screaming this. And that's because you didn't have close proximity to the problem like we did is why we were screaming it before the world noticed it. But you have to be bold enough. To stand in your own lane and
2: own that lane. No, I, I really, I really appreciate just your response, Diana, because what it what it signals to me is that we need to think about preparedness. We need to do this introspective look into capacity, and then, I, and I really like this focus on sustainability planning. That you're not just taking in funds for the moment, but you're looking in the go forward. What do we need to actually be able to stand up? for the long-term, uh, so you know, I really appreciate all of that framework we're thinking, particularly about uh, grantee organizations. We also talk a lot about this, this term, cultural competence. right? Sure, this is not the first time that many of us has have heard that, but we talk a lot about cultural competence within the sector, and I'd love to hear how you all think about cultural competence, particularly as we're talking about equitable grant-making and we're trying to center equity in our work. What role can cultural competence play in grant-making strategy and implementation? So, again, listen to all of your responses so far, we've talked about listening, we've talked about accountability, how to work collaboratively. How does cultural competence come into play when we're thinking about strategy and implementation?
4: I think with cultural competence, it's about the importance of understanding the dynamics within the communities being served and really knowing if and when multiple sets of norms and rules are in play and the dynamics between them. And it gets directly to also what Deanna was talking about around partnering, the importance of partnering with individuals who are closest to the the problem and understanding also cultural competence within communities, but then also cultural competence within our organizations, within the the, the funding organizations and how the different dynamics play together. And so I think it's the, the first step is just having an appreciation for overlapping interests and understanding how power and power dynamics impact them.
5: Yeah, I would agree. And I think for me, a lot of it is being able to show up in my work as my full self, as my full intersectional self, and and allowing that to be an asset. And not something that that has to be diminished in order to make a good investment. And so I think it's it's not it's not far from what you're saying, Alicia, is is under, you know, being able to say, like, I do understand some of these dynamics in these communities, and some of them maybe I don't understand, because it might connect to my Black identity, but it may not have connected to my class identity, for example. And so just being funders is is not being Philanthropoids, as I like to say, right? Like we are people and bringing that full personal self to the work. And I'll add at the Gates Foundation, a lot of our work is the majority of our work is global. And so even though we focus, my team focuses on relationships in the U.S., it is relationships that allow us to do our work in the U.S. and uh, across the world on, on issues around global health and global development. And so the, a humility is required. Right. To, to act with a cultural competence is a respect that your culture, your ways of working, of knowing, of being are not the only ways. And so that is when I think of cultural competence and I and I initially have like a knee jerk reaction to that to that label because it it does become like another way of just saying this is how we should be treating people, right? And so we we should need a label for it. We should value the perspectives of of folks who are different than us. But that's something that that I always start with. And I always look, I will say, and this is related to managing risk, is um, thinking about values and skills. And so cultural competence is not solely focused on the the skills or the way that we think about skills and executing, but also the values that people bring to their work. And balancing that as being equal to someone's ability to do it is what are the values that are coming from these communities or these constituencies that are just as important to the work that we're trying to do as what might be a a focus on another cultural way of of knowing or doing or being.
3: I'll just follow up in total agreement, but also being willing to be culturally competent is to be self-aware that I need more than one opinion at the table. So when we start talking about having a cultural awareness of different things, we do technical assistance with federal government entities who are implementing reentry initiatives across the country. And when, they, when grantees struggle with recruitment or retaining participants who are leaving incarceration, moving to their community, they kind of reach out to us as formerly incarcerated people and say, what can we do? And I immediately know if this is a tribal grantee working with a tribal population, Deanna is not the person to ask on how to do recruitment, right? Deanna reaches out to another leader who has a Native American background, that's their culture. There are certain things that we will never be able to tap into that taps into a person. But self-awareness of knowing just because I'm in the power seat to make the decision, I don't have the knowledge. Culturally, to actually have the impact that's intended, and I think it goes back to Melanie's talking about humbleness and knowing when to step back that this is not my lane, just because I'm the one who's in charge of the project or in charge of this portfolio, I need. So it, it, I wonder when organizations or funders say we've created a DEI task force, right? And then I look at the task force and I'll be like, well, who are they culturally <laughs> going to change? To actually do something because just because you're actually making a task force to say you're addressing that, are you truly having representation of the various cultures of the constituencies that you're trying to impact at that table? And it goes to what Melanie said, even if there's just because I'm an African-American person at that table, can I put aside my class privilege to actually have the impact of my black impact that is happening in the marginalized communities? So even having the ability to separate it, even if I, within a race, identify, I may have obtained other privileges that I can no longer connect to. So I have to be self-aware to put that on the table to say, Deanna, you've broken through glass ceilings of careers and different things. That's on the table. Go back to the impoverished community from where you were with. And how is this policy or this impact or process going to impact those most marginalized who have not yet to obtain that. So self-aware, but also just not how we give out grants. Do we go deep enough within organizations to look internally within their own HR hiring policies and different things of that nature that actually perpetrate the same disparities and cultural impact that they're saying they're trying to have outward? Are they doing it internally? Because I believe you can't sustain it outwardly if you haven't changed your culture and adaptation internally.
2: It makes me just think about the different ways in which you can lead, right? So when we think about cultural competence, it's this idea that you just don't always have to be at the forefront knowing everything, um, being that person, but it's actually knowing when to take a step back and saying, someone else should lead this conversation and I will be supporting that leadership. So everything that you all have shared makes me think about how do we re-envision leadership in many of these contexts in which we, we find ourselves? And you know something you said, Deanna, was about you know how do you look internally, right? We start that evaluation process, and it should happen first internally, and then we start to look at you know what are the um, impacts of our work and our grant making. And so, I would love us to just talk and highlight a little bit about evaluation of work and impact. Just to hear from you all on how do you develop a shared understanding of risk within your organization, where neither. Its application of of risk of this definition or the definition itself perpetuates systemic racism in grant making and promotes equitable evaluation. So, we've talked about all of this to this point where we're saying, how can we continue to be self aware enough to realize when we are not stepping into those same harmful practices and protocols that we're trying to fight against? So, how do you develop? that shared understanding of risk to actually get us to the point where we are not perpetuating um, harm.
3: Nick, are you asking from from an organizational standpoint? So for me, just in this work, I've always, whether hired by the Board of County Commissioners, the governor, whatever the work that we were supposed to do externally, I would always look internally to see, are we even doing it? And I could not be a voice for organization externally about practices and procedures that we weren't following internally. My current position, we're promoting that formerly incarcerated, directly impacted people need to be in positions of leadership making decisions. But I was the only person formerly incarcerated in leadership. So I had to immediately change that and address that, that I had to walk the walk that I was talking to authentically own it, to have the credibility. But that was if I truly believe that people who have close proximity to the issue should be in leadership in decision making at those policy tables, I had to actually replicate that internally because I believe in that. Right. So it shows where the organizations are. I always say. I look at an organization and they say this is what we're doing for the most marginalized communities and African American communities then I look at your whole executive team and leadership and your board of directors and there's not one African American on there you're just actually saying it cuz you internally have not ingested that to say this is what we believe in and this is how we operate because we're going to role model part of leadership we we teach principles of leadership And the main principle of leadership is modeling the way. Don't tell me what you want to do. Show me what you are actually saying you want to do because it will perpetrate out. And that's a huge component of leadership. Even when I look at opportunities of advancement for myself and people say, this is what we do, what we want to do. And then I look inside internally and you don't replicate what you're saying. So I, I think that for organizations, we have to internally digest. If we're asking people to be fair and equitable, are we internally fair and equitable to our team that we're building as well?
4: I think and also to, to build on that beyond the representation amongst decision makers and leadership is looking at even if you have a diverse table, who has power and who has voice and who feels supported enough to take risks and present perhaps risky portfolios you know i think one thing i'm going to start suggesting to some of my clients is to ha- is to first of all study the facial expressions that we saw this week with judge Ketanji brown jackson and 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 study them and look around your tables during board meetings and portfolio reviews and if you see them just note that, that that perhaps your organization has a problem and needs to take and needs to take a step back so i think again it's really that focused attention on power and voice really and who is able to really speak freely once they are at what we hope to be as a diverse decision-making table and speak freely without repercussion
5: yeah i'll just build on that uh just to say one thing as as a leader and as a newer leader someone who's just recently you know within the last year taken on a leadership position is giving my team permission to fail. And so sometimes I don't fully see the vision, I, I will admit, but to say like, okay, let's try it. Let's see. And then, and that being okay to do something that's a little bit more risky, something that is challenging the norms within our organization or within the sector. And, and um, let's see if it works. Let's try it. I, I, I love it all, so um,
2: I completely agree. And again, this this theme of leadership giving folks permission to fail. um, When we're thinking about how do we start this uh, evaluation process and making sure that it's starting internally before we then move externally.
5: And let me say something, Dana. To your point, if you're not you know able to to walk the walk or talk the talk, then don't be out in front. Right? If you know something is. Is a direction that you should be going into, and I say this all the time: like funders and and grantees are partners. And I often I have in the past used my funders to push my organization towards a direction. And so sometimes you're right. We're we we may not be doing the work internally that we that we need to be doing, but I can move money into this organization who is and begin to show that we could be going in this direction. But then I shouldn't come to you and say, "Oh, Deanna, I, I've I've already figured it out," right? I need to then understand to be behind you and to let you lead the way until my organization is ready.
2: So we wanted to also save some time for some uh, Q&A, and we already have some questions that have come in. And so I would encourage you to continue to submit questions in the chat, and we'll uh, see if we can get to them uh, during this conversation. So the, the first question, and this is to any of you, and it's can you address the line between the technical assistance that's offered by a funder and that kind of prescriptive dictation of how funds should actually be spent. We see this come up a lot. I would love to get some thoughts.
3: So I hate to keep going first, but I think it's the clear definition of what is technical assistance, right? Because it can take on many facets of it. And I think Melanie talked about one, one of the technical assistance can be simply, I need the, introduction to other funders or relationships that you have around the work we're doing, but then you get into a technical assistance of this is how you should be running your program. This is how you should be hiring your structure and different things of that nature. So I think identifying what technical assistance look like, or is it technical assistance or is it simply support? We're here to support you. If you find yourself struggling with carrying out some of the objectives of the grant. Maybe the technical assistance that support is actually moving your grant date, extending your, giving you an extension of time, right? That you don't feel overwhelmed because you had to ramp up to actually get to the deliverables of the grant. Or in the middle of the grant, the technical assistance can be the flexibility of working with you to put in a budget modification or a scope of work modification because once you got into it, what you outlined to implement the community had another direction and priority that you need to address and support with getting to the overall goal. So, what is technical assistance? I think it's kind of like risk, it's not a broad topic. Philanthropy comes at it as we're going to hold your hand around finances, operations, or programmatic issues, where it simply may be supporting you to actually move the needle because sometimes when you write the grant was the issue, but when you get to the community, the community may have identified another priority. So I think transparency and clarity on is it technical assistance that guides you or is the support that supports you?
4: I think it's also important to think for funders to think about technical assistance beyond the program or project deliverables and to think about what additional support might as the animal was saying the organization need around, perhaps around institutional development, perhaps it can be about board strengthening or strengthening their governance systems and things that will support the organization to be stronger after technical assistance that leads, that enables the organization to be stronger after the grant period. So I think again, like it's about reframing our understanding of technical assistance.
5: And I'll just say quickly about the line when it goes too far is I wonder if that's a call in call out moment for an executive director to say to the funder, I appreciate the assistance, but this is actually not where we need the help. And to have to have that be a conversation between what feels like uh, overstep on the part of the funder. or or just quite frankly, missing the mark, right? Of just not not being able to see the organization in the same light they do. Uh, I will never see and understand an organization better than any of the grantees that run it because I'm not thinking about it day to day. It's not my organization. It's not what I do. And so, you know, how can you use that example where there is that line being crossed to say this technical assistance is not helping. This is not where we are right now. And how can we work together to to get some clarity on that and to get to a place that that achieves what you need to achieve, funder, but is also beneficial to our organization?
2: Right. That reframe of how are we actually supporting you? How are we continuing to invest in your sustainability? So another question is have any of you done work around assessing risk tolerance with the board with the organization with the organization's leadership or their staff and if you have have you seen a disconnect where the board might want to be riskier but the staff wants to move a little bit cautiously or vice versa and you know what have you done in that situation that's
3: scary and i'll say it's scary because As a president CEO, not only am I running an organization to have an impact driven around the mission, I'm actually running a business. And sometimes those are making business decisions and your board may be focused on the mission and not understand investments, right? Stabilization of the organization. Why are we moving in that direction? I think one of the biggest for me was I came into an organization that had a founding board. And so we know founding boards support the founder more so and get aligned with the mission. So as we were pivoting, we had people who struggled. Why are we pivoting? This is not, and literally I had to go search and find the founding documents that talked about, I'm not driving us away from our mission. I'm just trying to get us aligned with our mission, right? But because what threw us into the national spotlight was so opposite. It literally became the tail wagging the dog versus the dog wagging the tail of the organization. But that was bringing the board along. But then I had staff who literally came on for the actual other things of the organization and not the founding principles and mission and had no understanding why we were going there. And I had a huge turnover, but I had to plan for that because I knew it was coming. As a leadership position, I was transparent. I prepared for the huge turnover, but I also prepared for the huge turnover to actually work with the staff that I knew was going to be a part of the reduction in force and give them options of other job assignments that aligned with the mission and still was in line with what they did. And of course, people were not there. But so I was struggling. And at one time, I thought I'm going to be the only person in this organization with a laptop. I'm going to have to start from scratch but it was understanding the business model of it. And I was faced between staff who was not okay with the change in the pivot or the risk. And then there was a risk to the funders because funders had got behind this national thing. And here I was pivoting this ship. But as a leader in the understanding of nonprofit management, uh, that mission drift happens. And if you don't stay aligned with your mission, you're gonna find yourself all over the place and stay focused on that we've survived it. But it was, I lost some funder relationships. I've lost a couple of board members and I've lost over 50% of the staff when we were doing that pivot. We've built back up since then, aligned with the mission. But that was a scary time because I had to look from a personal career objective. Am I killing my career by being willing to take this risk and moving everyone in the organization along from the board, the funders and the staff this direction to get aligned turned out to be the right decision but it was a really stressful scary time
2: thanks for for sharing that deanna and i think we have in terms of the time i know we just have a five or so more minutes and i want to make sure i ask a question that sort of can tie up all of what we've talked through today. And so based on everything that we've discussed and we've talked through practices, tools, mindsets as well, right, that shift that has to happen even individually when you are a grantmaker within a grantmaking organization, what do you all think is the next step for grantmakers to legitimately support the storytelling of historically marginalized communities in such a way that strengthens both grantee capacity as well as the communities in which those grantees operate? So it's a big question, but we've had a big conversation. So I would love to to get your thoughts on, on how we move forward from here.
4: I think briefly, one of the key things is just to embrace the messiness of narratives. And that and storytelling and to really recognize that change is not linear. And I think we fundamentally understand that, but then we still want these sort of neat and linear strategies and stories that are tied with a tied with a bow. And just to it's a, I, so I think a first step is just understanding that, you know, we we move through paradoxes and and stories just aren't neat and linear.
5: I would say a return to i don't know if it's a return but truth telling i think we have to be honest with ourselves that the stories that we've been telling are not the full stories and they're not the only stories and in a world where truth is in question i forget the phrase that was used by the last administration but there was some phrase that that was used about you know something it's like not a truth there's some in between truth and a lie and and, we, you know, and I, we can't even just blame it on the last administration. like We've been down this path. There, there's been a long history, especially, of course, in the world, especially in this country, of, of people lying about how things have gotten to the place where they are. And so I think a return to truth, and one way to do that, is through stories. I will just give a shout out to an organization that I love, which is Pop Culture Collaborative. I think the way that they are tapping into pop culture to to reframe those narratives, um, if you're not familiar with them, I encourage everyone to take a look. But I think that's what's needed for philanthropy is a a reckoning with the stories that we have told ourselves and how we've allowed those stories, uh, because some of them are done with really good intentions, right? I mean, I'm not saying that it's always negative, that we tell ourselves these stories about who people are and what they need and how they don't know what's best for them and for their communities. And so all of that needs to change. And I, I don't want to change that. I don't need to look at a, a chart and a graph to know that that needs to change. And I think what, what will change hearts and minds is the stories that we amplify, but the stories that we allow to also infiltrate our thinking and our work.
3: Now, I'll just follow up that I concur with everything. Melanie says something really powerful, that stories change hearts and minds. People change policies based on humanizing the issues, but also knowing the stories tell the story that, you know, from my perspective of the world, that people committed a violent crimes, uh, people formerly incarcerated are not hindered by advancing and becoming productive members of society, but we kept that so secret only to the nonprofit narrative to raise funds but not actually to storytelling to actually change and actually humanize the issues around the individuals we're addressing, right? And we continue to allow, Melanie says something very important and it made me think of where we are in this country, that even in spite of knowing truth-telling has to be centered, there are still people fighting from certain populations of knowing the true history, right? And, And I just believe that if you don't understand where a person has been or what the process has been, You can't make adequate changes that actually undoes that injustice. So storytelling has to be centered, but the space has to welcome it as well. So instead of Mm -hmm. charts and graphs, as Melanie said, how do we Mm -hmm. go far from the theory of change that people change, communities are changing, because that is actually the deliverable and the impact we're actually funding to do in this work.
2: Yeah, and I I think what you each have shared uh, these are really the principles around equitable grant making. At the end of the day, right? This idea that you change is not going to be linear. It's it's about how do you step in and really manage any sort of risk that might come up. Uh, okay. As Alicia said, embrace the messiness, uh, and then truth telling. There needs to be this reckoning for philanthropy to make sure that we are uh, accountable for the things that we say we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And then finally, you know, Deanna, your point about just centering humans human centered work at the end of the day and you know for everyone who joined us this conversation should not end here the question now is how do we take forward what we heard here to change our own personal behavior as grant makers transform organizational behavior and the culture of grant making organizations and institutions and continue to build bravely. I want to say my immense thanks to our panelists, our wonderful panelists, uh, Alicia, Melanie, and Deanna for such powerful sharing of your own experiences and your expertise. And I want to thank all of you who joined us for your time and your engagement.
1: And that completes this two-part series of managing risk for equitable grant making. As we wrap up, If you are interested in partnering with a law firm that leverages a global network of experienced attorneys with decades of legal training and practical experience and focuses on social impact organizations to serve as an outsourced general counsel and thought partner, then schedule a discovery call with the Campbell Law Firm today. The Campbell Law Firm works with brave nonprofits, philanthropists, ultra high net worth individuals, and movements, offering high touch counsel to social impact entrepreneurs and organizations around the world. We would love to hear more about your brave mission to change the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit
0: Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building
5: bravely.